pediatric care, management of eye diseases, to contact lenses and laser surgery co-management, Wise Vision Care is a name you can trust. 525-9473. The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP Buford, Hilton Head Island, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church of Buford, on the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. This is an opportunity for us to dialogue over the only book God ever wrote, the Holy Scripture. And if you have a particular question this morning that you would like to ask as it relates to your study of God's Word, your ministry, or a special need you might have in your own life or family, feel free to call us. Again, the number locally is 525-1859. For those outside of the state of South Carolina, we have a toll-free number. That is 877 877- WAGP 980. Either of those numbers will bring you directly here to the switchboard. And when our person, Deb, answers, you can dictate the question or go on the air live. Uh, You can remain totally anonymous if you're comfortable doing that. You can also email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. Good morning, Rick. As always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor. And we've got a little bit of break from the heat, so we're thanking the Lord for that. And we do have a number of questions, so let's get to them right now. Uh, one person wrote, did Christ actually go to hell? Why did he go there? And how long was he there? Would you comment on this relative to the creeds? Well, some of the creeds contain... The words that Christ died, was buried, he descended into hell, and on the third day he was raised from the dead. Many ancient creeds include those words. Uh, Most uh, evangelical Christians don't debate the literal descent of the Lord Jesus into hell. I guess uh, over the course of the centuries, the point of debate has come over why did he descend? And there has been a broad number of reasons given on the spectrum of liberalism down to those who believe in the infallibility of the Word of God. Number one, he did not descend into hell in any way, shape, or form to pay for sin. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus went to hell to to die and pay for our sin. No, on the cross, just before he died, he said, to telestai. It's an interesting Greek word. Uh, we translated in John 19:30 with three English words. In in Greek, sometimes the subject, verb, object is all contained in a single word. It means it is finished. It is finished. Uh, we have, I say, we archaeologists archaeologists have dug up a number of different kinds of instruments with that very word on it. One is called a certificate of debt. Paul mentions such a thing in the book of Colossians, where he speaks of the fact that. 
God has removed our certificate of debt that had our transgressions that were against us, and he's nailed it to the cross. When you paid your um, dues in a Roman debtor's prison or whatever the situation might have been, they would give you your uh, certificate of debt that listed your crime, and it would have written across it to Telestai with the Roman imprimatur on it, so that if you were ever rearrested in the Roman Empire, you could produce your certificate of debt showing that your uh, your deed had been paid, your debt had been paid to society. Uh, in 1961, in the city of Jerusalem, some archaeologists dug up a first century tax office, and they found a number of uh, pieces of ancient papyri from Christ's day where someone would go in and they would pay their tax. And next to their name, uh, when their tax was paid, they wrote the Greek word tetelestai. Again, it carries the idea it's finished, it's paid in full. All that God demands has been dealt with on the cross. So Jesus did not descend into heaven, I mean into hell, to pay for sin. It was paid for on the cross. Uh, Some more liberal proponents, like uh, a fellow by the name of Clark Pinnock, he just died, uh, I think, in the last 12 months, He wrote a famous book in the 1970s called Christianity on Trial. Uh, Somewhat of a moderate to liberal apologist, uh, had a lot of different, less than orthodox views on a number of issues. And he argued that Jesus descended into hell to give people a second chance. Well, that certainly does not dovetail with a plain interpretation of Scripture. For it is appointed for a man to die once, and after this, the Scripture says, comes the judgment. So I don't think he descended into hell to give people a second chance because the Bible is very clear. At the moment of death, there is no second chance. You are either in the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, or you are in that awful place called Hades that in the end turns into the lake of fire. It does tell us in the book of Colossians, a text that I just referenced, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is before you were saved, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. It was hostile to us because it condemned you. You could not in the final judgment of God say, well, God, I'm innocent. God would say, actually, I've got my CD here. And on it are the list of your transgressions. That's why the scripture says in Romans 3.20, every mouth will be closed at that judgment. No one will be defending themselves. It was hostile to us. And the text says he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But then verse 15 is interesting. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross, through him. And so... The Lord made a public display of rulers and authorities. He's speaking here in the, of the demonic world. Uh, but there was a group of angels that did not have a public display made of them. There's a group of angels that are in a place called Tartarus. They are, in the words of the Apostle Peter, in eternal bonds. They have no freedom to roam. Uh, there are different kinds of demons in the world. Most demons are free to wage war against God's people. And so Ephesians 6 speaks of a war that is raging in the heavenlies. 
that there are principalities and powers that wage war against God's people. There's another class of demons that have no ability to wage war. They are in eternal bonds of darkness. And I believe it was to this group of people that Jesus went, uh, this group of angelic persons that Jesus went and made a declaration to. Um, that's the real short answer, but if you listen to a sermon that I preached on this very subject from 1 Peter chapter um, 4, you can get the long answer, and it will walk you through. Actually, 1 Peter 3, verses uh, 17 to 22, and if you listen to that message, I go through who these angels were. I believe these were the angels that sinned in the days of Noah, the Bnei Elohim, uh, literally the sons of God. The term sons of God is used in the scripture to uh, refer to angels, good and bad. Uh, they're refu- it's used to refer to Adam. He's called a son of God, and it's used to refer in John's gospel and others to those who've been born again. Those who are direct creation of God are designated uniquely sons of God. Angels were a direct creation of God. God made a set number of angels. That's why Jesus said, in heaven we're like the angels. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Angels don't marry and have angel babies. God at one time made a fixed number of angels. Some of those angels rebelled. A third of them fell when Satan fell. They rebelled against God. And out of that third, some have freedom to roam. Some committed such an awful, heinous sin during the days of Noah they have been committed to pits of darkness. And these are that group that uh, would not have known. So it says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? In order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Please note here in First Peter 3.18 what it does not say. It does not say that he was uh, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the flesh. Now, that is true, and his physical, literal resurrection is going to be affirmed in verse 21. But it says he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, uh, that term in which modifies spirit. In Christ's spirit, what did he do? He went and he made proclamation to the spirits. Uh, Now is italicized in the New American Standard, but it's implied in the original, now in prison. There is a group of fallen angels that are now in prison that Peter calls, um, are in a place called Tartarus. Tartarus is a certain section of hell. Uh, It's a holding cell of sorts, a death row of sorts. They are in eternal chains of, of, of darkness. And he went and he made proclamation to these spirits now in prison who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So he looks back at these spirits, these B'nai Elohim, who committed a sin in the days of Noah. I believe it's connected with Genesis 6. Listen to either to the sermon on Genesis 6 or the one on 1 Peter 3. Genesis 6 is right up online right now. So if they go to where, where can they get that sermon? Just search the scriptures. I'm sorry. The uh, one to go to is the easiest one is to go to cbcofbuford.org and then click on uh, listen to this past Sunday's message. And then you'll just be able to um, scroll through, scroll through and listen uh, to the one on Genesis, Genesis 6, 6, 1 through 7, I think is how we broke that text. And uh, it will walk you through all the passages, Old and New Testament. The neat thing about the Genesis 6 passage is there's New Testament commentary that is found in First Peter, Second Peter, in the book of Jude. 
and you let Scripture interpret Scripture, and it becomes very plain what for almost 1,500 years of church history no one disputed. That is that the B'nai Elohim were fallen angelic spirits who sinned during the days of Noah. And I believe that's what's in view, and that's why Jesus descended to preach to that so that those in heaven above, on earth beneath, and those even in the darkest uh, caverns of hell would know of his victory through the shed blood of his cross. Great question. Let's go to our next one. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And uh, if you'd like to email us, you may do so at tbl at net. Our next caller would like to know if it is okay for a Christian to have an unsaved friend. And the caller would like to know if you have any unsaved friends. Yeah, Jesus was a friend of sinners, and I hope you're continually, habitually friendly with lost people. I had a brother at my doorstep a couple days ago, uh, kind of a health guy, and we're talking about it. But, you know, when he lived in my neighborhood, we became friends, and I spent time with him. Uh, And that time led itself to an opportunity to share the gospel, and sharing the gospel led to an open door to lead him to faith in in Jesus Christ. So Jesus was a friend of sinners. Do I think your best friends should be lost people? Not typically. The Bible gives some balance here. It says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And certainly you don't um, need to be with people who are going to drag you down. If you are of the stature in your faith with Jesus Christ, that uh, you are going to be influenced uh, negatively by lost people, then you're not at the point where while you can be friendly to them, you need to hang with them. Uh, There is a warning in Scripture, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, the context of that verse is theologically. You hang around with theologically liberal people, they can influence you, and that's the warning Paul gives, but that can certainly be extended and applied to a number of different realms. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Rome, I will have you to be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil. So if in your participation with lost people, they're dragging you into evil, then you've crossed a line. You don't go to the places where they might go. You don't watch the movies that they might watch. You don't uh, go to um, or participate in conversations that are downright evil Uh, So there's some guards and some parameters that God gave. But can you have lost people into your home and have them for dinner or go to a ball game with them or go hunting with them? Or our friend Bert Shiflett and Bert is a great friend. And one of the ministries that Bert has had over the years was uh, having lost people out to his uh, hunting plantation uh, and it became a springboard to lead them to Christ. Um, and I've brought a number of people out there with his permission over the years, and uh, it was an opportunity to witness and to speak to some of those guys about the Lord. So you look for whatever venue God may give you where you're in control, you're in the driver's seat uh, in the sense that your personal convictions um, and moral standards are in no way shape being compromised. And in that context, yeah, you ought to have some lost friends and you ought to be friendly to lost people. Uh, I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Howard Hendricks. He's in his late 80s now. I think he's 87 or 88. Uh, Still kicking. 
Um, but Dr. Hendricks used to say that Christians were good for about two years. He said after about two years, he said all their friends were Christians and they became typically ineffective for the kingdom of God. And sometimes we build up these uh, shields, uh, these force fields, you know, where we don't let anybody in because we're afraid we're going to become contaminated by lost people. And we don't want to think that way. Uh, I hope as you're out in the community that you see lost people the way God saw you when you were lost, that God seeks and saves those that are lost. You know, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Who's lost? All of us by nature. Christ died for sinners. Who's sinful? All of humanity. And so uh, Jesus came to seek a lost world. And if we are obeying his will, we'll be doing the same. All right. Very good. Um, Deer hunting season started yesterday. So Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. anybody out there who's lost that would like to get saved and maybe a buck or two, call Pastor Brogy or meet him at uh, at the next uh, Meet the Pastor meeting. All right. Uh, is it um, Emmanuel from Beaverdale, Pennsylvania, would like to know Christmas to celebrate or not? There are so many pagan origins concerning Christmas. Should a child of God celebrate such a holiday? Well, you know, I see it as an opportunity for witness, and that's really what the early church saw it as, at least certainly by the time of Constantine. Some would debate whether or not they were uh, celebrating Christmas prior to that. Um, obviously there's no command in scripture to celebrate Christmas. Is there an affirmation in the word of God concerning his incarnation? Of course. Um, there's clear affirmations that Jesus literally came in the flesh. Uh, it's interesting at different times in church history, people have denied different aspects of Christ's character more in our day than ever. They deny his deity, But there were times in the history of the church where they denied his humanity. Uh, The Bible affirms both the humanity and deity of Christ. And how he took on human flesh is clearly affirmed in the word of God because it affirms uh, his sinlessness. He could not come through the typical means of a human father. His conception was by God, the Holy Spirit, who overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and took his eternal deity and added to it inseparably sinless humanity so that he could say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. With that said, um, some would argue, well, you know, during the time of the Roman Empire, there was, um, you know, a pagan holiday that was held on December the 25th, and it was pagan to the core. And so for Christians to celebrate the incarnation on December the 25th is, is downright wrong. Um, Look, I I think what a lot of early Christians did is they saw this uh, time when it was a time of immorality and drunken revelry, and they created an alternative, and they said, let's highlight the incarnation. Now, no one can say with dogmatism that Jesus was born on December the 25th, but let me just say as well, no one can say with dogmatism that he was not Um, And I've read the arguments on both sides from church fathers all the way up until the current day. No one can say either. But I think what we can do as Christians is take what is an opportunity and use it to share the gospel because the true meaning of Christmas is the cross. And so when you relate Christmas to the cross, you have an opportunity. Uh, One of the brothers um, 
came to me last year in the fall and said, look, we want to do a uh, evangelistic Christmas party, our Bible study. Would you come and speak? I said, I would love to come and speak. So they, I think, amassed a list of about 100 people, sent invitations. Uh, we're having a Christmas party, and we're going to have a guest speaker on the true meaning of Christmas. And I went in, and I related the true meaning of Christmas from Genesis to Revelation and shared the plan of salvation. It was an opportunity. They were really thinking strategically. They were thinking in terms of winning people to the Savior. Now you've got some people like during the time of early America, the Puritans, they, they did not celebrate Christmas. Oh, they were a bunch of old stick in the muds. You know, there were some good Puritans. I'm not saying that, but good night. They missed an opportunity to win some people to to Christ. And I think we're a little bit too ingrown. If you study the Puritans, while they had some good theology, they weren't passionately soul winners. And I think we should be. And I think they missed an opportunity. I think some Christians today are missing an opportunity. Now, do I think we should feature Santa Claus when we celebrate our Christmas tradition? No, I don't. I think we should we should uh, put it where it belongs in Jesus Christ. And that's what we should focus on with our children and everything else. But neither do I think that we shouldn't celebrate it. Yeah, I, I think it's part of being all things to all men. And some Christians get so weird. You know, it's like Halloween that will come up here in a few months. And we'll always get calls in the Bible line and say, well, you know, Pastor, if you give a piece of candy to uh, someone who shows up at your door, you know, you're worshiping the devil. Well, maybe you are, but I'm not. I'm just giving a kid a piece of candy. I'm not giving some offering to the devil. And I also, when we are home on Halloween, have our doors open, we give them an evangelistic tract for kids, designed for kids, uh, giving them the plan of salvation. So we give the kids a piece of candy and uh, something about Jesus. So, look, you can become so weird in this society that you can relate to absolutely no one, and you miss so many opportunities in terms of being all things to all men. I think if the Apostle Paul were living here on in this century, he would be taking some of the devil's holidays, if you want to call that, in um, you know, turning them around and preaching Jesus through them, just like he did on Mars Hill, you know, to an unknown God. In case we miss one, here's our statue to an unknown God. And Paul says, well, let me tell you who this unknown God is, this one who is unknown to you. He's the one who made you, who created the heavens and the earth. In him, we live and move and find our being. And he turned it around as an opportunity, a pagan thing, and used it to further the cause of Christ. I think that's what we should be doing with some of these things and not be so weird that we can relate to no one and uh, miss opportunities to win people to Jesus. All right, 525-1859, toll-free 877-WAGP980. And you can also email us at tbl at net. Our next uh, person writes, Who is the disciple Jesus is talking about in John 21, verse 20? To me, it's not a mystery. Uh, there are references through the Gospel of John about the disciple whom Jesus loved. And um, he actually identifies himself uh, in, the, in the book. If you come to the last of the, the end of the epistle, uh, the end of this Gospel, really, John 21 and verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. We know right off it's one of the 12, excluding Judas, obviously, because um, we know that um, it, we know in the upper room, 
he is the one who leans on Jesus' breast as he's identified here. Um, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So all this nonsense that was Mary Magdalene or a host of other suggestions is absolutely ridiculous because we know that um, it has to be one who is in the upper room when they celebrated the Last Supper with the Lord. So right off, it narrows it down to 11. Uh, Even in this crowd in John 21, uh, there are seven people who are here. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples. And Simon Peter said to that group, I'm going fishing. So we've narrowed it down to seven. But then I think you narrowed it down even further by the final, next to the final statement, the next to the last verse in the book. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, we know that his witness is true. So the one who wrote the gospel of John, according to John 21, 24, is the one whom Jesus loved. So unless you deny Johannine authorship, which is what liberal scholars have typically done, then you don't know who the disciple is whom Jesus loved. But if you believed what people like Eusebius and others uh, in the church fathers recorded, and what the, um, you know, superinscriptions that obviously were not inspired, uh, the gospel according to John, that's not inspired that title any more than the chapter and verse divisions are. But if you believe church history, uh, that uh, John is the author of this gospel, and I believe he is, and I believe uh, as early as the church fathers is clear affirmation of that, then you'd have to say that the one whom Jesus loved was John himself. And I think there's good reason for it. You know, why, why does Jesus have this special relationship with John? Well, you might want to listen to a message that I did in my series on the Gospel of John. It's because they're first cousins. What's really interesting, you put together the Gospels, you discover that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his, her sister uh, was John and James's mother. So they were first cousins, so to speak. And so you can put some scriptures together. That's clear. That's undisputed. So what I could see happening is Jesus growing up and John was his first cousin. I don't know, you know, Jesus maybe was a few years older than John. Maybe they hung out as kids, played together. And, you know, to this day, uh, you know, I got a thing in the, through my email the other day, a security question, who was your best friend growing up? You, you, you get security questions like that, right, Rick, when mm-hmm. you do those things? Yeah. And so I typed in, you know, Mark. It was Mark Charest. Mark was a little kid I hung around with. And, um, you know, he was a friend when I was a, a young boy. And a lot of us have friends like that. And probably Jesus and John had that kind of relationship. And, and uh, they had a special affinity and he had a special love for him. Uh, in that respect. Uh, I I don't believe God has his favorites, but I do believe he has his intimates. Uh, In one sense, God loves us all. In a broad sense, he loves the whole world. For God so loved the world, and world there means world. Um, 
God uh, died for sinners and we're all sinners and he demonstrated his love in that way. But while God loves the whole world, he has a special affinity for those who are born again. And that's why those who are born again are called his beloved or his beloved. He, we are beloved of God, verbal form. We are his beloved, noun form. Uh, so God has a special affection, just like you have a special affection. I love the kids in our church, but I have a special love for my own children. God just gives you that. That's a special affinity. And even within that group who are called the beloved, God has a special intimate love. God is intimate, Proverbs says, with the righteous. And there are some who walk maybe closer to the Lord. And, and while God has his, uh, doesn't have his favorites, he does have his intimates. And for whatever reason, John was one of those. Now, the homosexual movement, the metropolitan church and all that, man, they take these verses and they blaspheme the Savior with them. My, they have a lot to give an account for when they meet the living God. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. Um, next uh, listener would like to know, uh, if, a, if a husband is trying to keep his saved wife from church, what should the wife do? If a husband is trying to keep his saved wife from church, what should the wife do? Obey God. Uh, there are times when the scripture plainly says, as in the Acts, we must obey God rather than men. So I appreciate the question because this wife probably no doubt is thinking, well, God says to submit to my husband's leadership, to fall under his leadership. And as much as uh, it was a good political answer that submission, as one of our ladies running for president said, means mutual respect, that's not what it means. It means to fall under line. Now, it is true, too, that uh, we're called to submit one to another, but God gives headship to males. Uh, it was a good answer you know, in terms of satisfying the liberal media, but it's not a biblical answer. Um, and so this wife, no doubt, is thinking, well, God calls me to submit to my husband, and my husband doesn't want me to go to church. Well, listen, you're not to forsake your assembling together with the brethren. The first day of the week is when the church met. We might call that the New Testament Sabbath. In honor of the resurrection, God's people began to meet on the first day of the week. The Ten Commandments are timeless. Their application are dispensational. For instance, God said, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land as it's recorded in Deuteronomy. The Decalogue's found in two places, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. The Deuteronomy 5 passage gives us that promise of God blessing the Jew not only with a quality of life, but with a long life in the land. When Paul quotes it in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, he says that it may go well with you and that you live, may live long on the earth. And he expands it. Because God's people are not typically, as in that day, geographically isolated to the land of Israel, but they're all across the planet, the church, the body of Christ. And so the ten, the commandment is still timeless, but its application in the church age is broader than the land of Israel, but to the earth. Well, you know, God says in six days you do, shall do your work. Why? Because in six days he created the heavens and the earth, and in the seventh day he rested. And God, by the way, believed in a literal creation of six 24-hour days. And Moses tells us that when he gives commentary on the creation by the Spirit's breath, when he gives us that fourth commandment. 
but still, uh, it's clear in the New Covenant that the application of it was not the seventh day, but the first day of the week when God's people gathered and met for worship. So your husband needs to know in a respectful way, honey, I love you. Uh, I I, want to submit to you, but there's one area I cannot submit to you. And that's if you ever ask me to do something that God's word specifically tells me otherwise. And he tells me on the first day of the week, I need to gather with his people and I'm going to do that. And you just uh, respectfully do not submit. You show your husband honor. Now, you might want to be creative in your submission there. You know, I've known women over the years. Our church, for instance, offers two services on Sunday morning at 9, 15, and 11. And I know some wise women who get up early. They have uh, the, um, to affirm their husbands, they, they even have breakfast in the oven. It's time cooked. It comes on when he gets up. It's ready and waiting for him. She goes to the early service, and she's back uh and he hasn't missed the thing, you know, so there's a lot of creative things that you can do. There are some things, if you're married to a non-Christian, that you might not do. Uh, you might not come to a midweek service. You might not go to every Bible study that's offered. But, you know, ideally what would happen in your marriage is that your husband sees such positive change in your life through your spiritual involvement in the local assembly that he um, likes you going to church because he likes what's happening. Um, Paul, I mean, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, in the same way, your wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. What, what would drive some pagan men nuts is you come home and you preach at them. And Peter says, no, you don't go home and preach at him. Win him without a word. Win him by your changed life so that they would think, well, I don't know what they're teaching you down at that church, but I like it. Uh, you, you treat me with more respect and you honor me and and uh, speak well of me in front of the children and everything else and keep going there. And uh, that that's the kind of response ideally you would like to have. It may not happen. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. But you have to obey God rather than men on this one. And this is one where you respectfully do not submit to your husband. And again, I would emphasize respectfully not submit to his authority. We must obey God rather than men. When they were told you can no longer preach Jesus, we're going to throw you in jail if you do. Their answer was clear. We must obey God rather than men because God had given them a clear mandate to go into all the world and to make disciples. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And um, Leland from West, uh, actually we have Roger from Worcester, Mass. He'd like to know, when liberals equate evolution with creation, should not the children of God always point to Scripture for everything? Well, certainly this uh, becomes a, a critical, critical issue. And this caller from Worcester, Massachusetts might want to uh, listen to my messages on uh, Genesis 1 and 2 that are now online at uh, cbcofbuford.org. You can download them into iTunes. Uh, the Search the Scriptures website will soon have all those messages also available for you to download there. 
But um, here's the thing is a lot of um, Christians think that they are doing the word of God's service and Christianity service by trying to blend um, creationism, creationism with evolution. But listen, whenever you take um, evolution and you mix it with the Bible, you have gone way beyond any plain teaching of the Word of God. You, you cannot do that. The Bible does not teach theistic evolution, that God used the process of, of evolution to create the world. And some Christians have come to that conclusion or have said, well, if you want to believe that, that's okay. It's really not okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he create them? Well, it's exposed in the next two chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, giving us uh, the days of creation, what happened on what day. Genesis 2, highlighting in more specific terms what happened within those six days of creation. But you cannot cross Father God with Mother Nature and come up with what the Bible says. Uh, that's theistic evolution. God did not use the process of evolution to create the world because when you put evolution um, into the equation, what have you done? You violated a basic premise that is found in the first three books of Genesis and that's affirmed throughout the Bible, and that is that death is a product byproduct of sin. And theistic evolution has death prior to the fall. So you got millions and millions of years of death and then, quote unquote, the fall. That's not biblical. Death came into the world through sin. And the scripture is very, very clear on that. And so uh, there's no way you can mix them. And so either Genesis chapters one and two are true or they are not. And we have to affirm their truthfulness. And if you don't understand it, maybe you need to be regenerated by the Spirit or you need to study the Scripture more carefully. You might want to listen to some of these messages I did in the first three chapters of of Genesis. But we don't have to make apology for that. Um, You know, they have a theory. And most of those proponents of evolution start with certain presuppositions, Their presuppositions often is there's no God or there's no such thing as the supernatural. Well, if there's no God and there's no such thing as the supernatural, then evolution is probably the best the fallen mind can come up with. But what they want to do is they want to create billions and billions of years uh, uh, where man does not exist. And they want to create in your mind this model that's been going on for billions of years and will continue on for billions of years. Why do they want to do that? Well, what's the basic thought behind that? No accountability. That this thing's just been going on for billions of years. It will continue to go on for billions of years. And there's really no real accountability to your creator. And so that's convenient. It's a a fancy way of dismissing God out of their thoughts. And that's exactly the sin of Romans 1. They did not choose to give God thanks or praise, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, professing to be wise. They became foolish, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And that's what evolution is. Uh, Some people who God would call foolish who have exchanged the truth that he has written all over creation. God's divine attributes, his eternal nature, Paul says, are clearly seen through the things that he has made. 
and man wants to suppress that truth. And in the process, he comes up with some foolish alternatives. And one of those foolish alternatives, of course, is evolution. All right. Very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us with your question to tbl at net. Now, Leland from West Greenwich, Rhode Island, would like to know, he says, I've been struggling with finding the Bible that suits all my needs. I've finally found an okay system using a Thompson Chain Reference Bible in the New King James Version uh, with the single-volume MacArthur Commentary. What translation study Bible do you recommend? I have much to learn, so some of the study Bible is necessary. I can't settle on which one or translation. I tend to gravitate toward the New King James Version and the New American Standard, but I'm not sure. The HS, uh, HCSB seems okay and actually uses the term slave instead of servant, etc., which leads me to believe it may be a straight-shooting translation. Any suggestions for a good Bible? You said he. How do you know it's a he? Leland. Isn't that a man's name? In the north, most Lelands are women. Really? In the south, most Lelands are men. I didn't know so that. So I don't know. Okay. But, uh, so I, <laughs> I stand possibly corrected. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I, just, I just thought it was interesting. Uh, okay. All the Lelands I knew growing up were, were girls oh, okay. in high school and so that's, forth. That's and the neighbor neat. across the street. But it could be a guy. So whatever you okay. are, <laughs> we'll try to respond to your answer. All right. You might want to listen to our series that is now available, uh, will we'll actually will be soon available um, in our Institute of Biblical Studies. It's called Bibliology. It's another course in our Institute of Biblical Studies. And there are six sections to it. There's over 500 pages of notes. We have an institute called the Institute of Biblical Studies where you can basically get an equivalent to a one-year Bible certificate, and you study the major realms of theology, like uh, a survey of the New Testament, uh, angelology, anthropology, soteriology. Uh, One of the courses is bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. And section six in that, and the tapes and notes are available, um, is uh, dealing with the subject of the English Bible, how we received our English Bible, and what was the process that led up to it. Of course, some translations are different than from others. At one end of the spectrum, you have very literal translations. At the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, totally paraphrastic translations, and then everything in between. Uh, there are some, in the most literal sense, would be like an interlinear Bible, where you have maybe the Greek and the English underneath it, and you'll see the word order is often quite different than the way it would read in our English text. Uh, in Greek, as in Hebrew, uh, word order determines emphasis. And so if you put a word out of its typical order, you're doing so for emphasis. And so it's not uncommon, for instance, in Greek to have the verb first um, and then the uh, noun or the, the subject. And so word order is everything. Obviously, that's difficult to read. So you want a, a text that's readable and let and yet literal. So you mentioned here in the New King James. The New King James, is, I think, would fit that bill. It's very, very good. Um, it's uh, an update of the old King James. The King James 
uh, through uh, 1769 had five revisions. And then the sixth major revision, though you could argue seventh because there was the 1900 King James Version, um, but the uh, six, what's typically referred to as the sixth major revision, because there really wasn't any major changes in the 1900 King James vision, uh, version other than uh, punctuation reflecting, um, you know, more recent rules of grammar. Uh, the uh, sixth edition would be the new King James, and it took a lot of the old words of the old King James, many of which had become virtually obsolete in English, and used in their place a newer uh, word that would be reflective of the original. Uh, The New American Standard, I think, does a fantastic job of uh, trying to uh, do the same thing. Uh, The NIV, which is the most uh, popular translation in America, uh, first came out in 84 in its complete Old and New Testament forms. First, it came out, as many English translations did, with a New Testament a few years later, followed by an Old Testament. And so they have what we call the NIV 84. It's a little more paraphrastic than, say, the New King James or the Old King James or the New American Standard. It's just not quite as literal. And when you want to study the Bible verse by verse, phrase by phrase, it's very helpful to have a literal translation of the text. It just uh, is much more precise and much more helpful. Uh, What's more controversial is the NIV 2010. And what they haven't told you now when you go to buy an NIV uh, that has been printed in the last year is uh, it's the NIV 2010. It came out in paper form of Mar- in March of 2011. It was first put up on the Internet in 2010. And in this course in Bibliology, I review the uh, NIV 2010 and demonstrate that it really has some uh, gender-inclusive language that I think is unhealthy and not accurate to what God originally inspired. Uh, the uh, the group of folks who were involved in this uh, first did what was called the TNIV and then later came out now with the NIV, but they don't call it the TNIV, but it's kind of a hybrid between the old NIV and the TNIV, or what the Brits put out, the NIVI, that is the NIV inclusive. So it's kind of a hybrid of those three, and uh, I don't think uh, is really truly faithful to the Word of God as it should be. Uh, You mentioned here the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is a translation that was done by uh, Southern Baptists. And they were doing it in reaction to, they started this process when they discovered that uh, Zondervan was not going to keep their word. Uh, A group of uh, Christians said, look, we don't think the uh, TNIV is going to be a good idea. We think it's going to really distort what God said. And they said, we won't do it. And then they they signed a pledge with about 100 people, and then they went out and did it anyway, uh, which to me lacked integrity. Uh, So it was in that context that Southern Baptists began when they discovered that, the process of coming up with their own translation. And it's a very good translation. Um... You mentioned they use the word slave. Um, Here's the thing with the word slave. 
Uh, the New American Standard does it by putting the word bond slave. Um, and there is value in either translating it bond slave or slave uh, because it, it speaks of voluntary enslavement. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when God spoke of a a slave who at the end of his years wanted to continue as a slave, you would take him to the doorpost of the house and you'd put a mark in his ear. And he was basically saying, because I love my master, I want to continue to serve in that capacity. And the word that is used there is the same word that's used in Romans 1 when Paul refers to himself as a bondservant. Uh, The HCSB would say a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul says, uh, the New American Standard reads here, a bondservant, because again, it's highlighting that this is not the typical word for slave, but it's a slave who through voluntary submission, because he's been purchased with the blood of Christ, has put himself totally under the lordship of Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. I like the HCSB. There's a few passages I don't like. I don't like the way they translated Malachi 2.16 um, and a couple of other verses. And again, I evaluate that. But overall, I think it's an excellent translation and it's uh, faithful to the original. Um, So there's a number of good ones that are out there. If people ask me for what I think is the the best one to buy today, I I recommend the New American Standard. I, I really like it. Uh, The ESV has become very, very popular in more recent days. It's a good translation, though I don't like some of the notes in the ESV because I think it lacks uh, good sound scholarship. The notes are quite extensive, but some of them, I think, are are not really reflective of good evangelical theology. Most of them are. I have by no means read them all, but I've read a number of them, and uh, some of them I don't care for. Let's go to our next live caller who's waiting patiently on okay, the line. Okay, I don't see anybody on the oh, line Oh, I thought right they were now. there. Okay. Uh, but uh, Leland does have a second uh, question. Uh, Leland says they are searching for a church. Right. And uh, they were baptized Catholic, but have recently run into some issues with the Catholic Church due to the fact that they became Catholic after being married, but never had the marriage validated by the church. So now Leland cannot receive communion and is told that that Leland is living in a state of mortal sin. I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing at the fact that uh, I'm not sure whether Leland is male or female. (laughs) Anyway, Leland is uh, living in a state of mortal sin, according to the church, out of communion with God, and would like to know, what do you think about this? Does the Bible indicate that uh, you have to be married in a church? And what denominations do you recommend? Leland is conservative, has strong conservative views regarding abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality. And finally, what... uh, do you have any Rhode Island churches that you might recommend? And we do now have that live caller standing by. So go ahead and go to them. All right, we'll go to that. Thanks for holding. You are on the line, on the air. Hi, Pastor Bogey. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Thanks for calling today. Um, I have a question concerning Genesis 1-1. Yes. Um, I was listening to something for school last week from Vision Forum, um, a conference of the history of the world, and one of the one of the teachers on there said that in Genesis 1-1, when it says God created the heavens, that it means the first two heavens. And my question is, if it does mean that, well, I want to know if it's accurate, and if it does mean that, then um, if everything was very good until the fall of man, then when would Satan have fallen? It's a good question. In the beginning, 
uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting to look at the grammar. In the beginning, God, it's actually a plural noun, Elohims, we could say, created a singular verb, which would have uh, rattled any rabbi. Mm, God, plural, singular verb. We don't do that in English. You don't typically do that in Hebrew. We don't say they is fat. We say he is fat. And yet here's a plural noun with a singular verb. And then the heavens in uh, Hebrew, there is a uh, dual and then there's uh, three or more. So there's two different ways to express plurality. Uh, you can use a form of a noun that expresses two, or you can use a form of a noun that expresses three or more. Uh, this is actually a dual. So he created dual, the heavens, two heavens and the earth. Then the question becomes another question. Where do we get our third heaven that Paul refers to? That's another question for another day. But when did Satan fall? I take it that he, um, and, and, and let me just say, there, there are good people who differ on this. And I think at one time in my own life, I held to a different position. Uh, in my earlier days, I held to the position that Satan fell in eternity past. But as I thought it through in seminary, um, I came to a different position that, no, he fell sometime after uh, man was, uh, sometime after the world was created, because he was clearly in Eden. Uh, there are two key critical passages that deal with the fall of Satan. I always remember them 14 times 2 is 28. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, those are two passages that highlight the fall of Satan. And when he's described, for instance, in the Ezekiel text, it says you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Um, and again, he's describing Lucifer, the shining one, Satan. When you come to verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, the things that he say, says here cannot possibly apply to any human being. Uh, he's giving really here a description of Satan who controls the king of Tyre, um, but clearly he is a unique person, and what's said here could not be said of the king of Tyre, but only of someone like Satan created with perfection. Um, and here he is yet in the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden was already in existence, and it's after this that Satan falls. So I take it the fall of Satan happened uh, after the world was created. How much time? Well, um, you know, it's a good question. Some people put it, put it you know, very, very shortly um, after the creation of the world. Um, clearly, Adam and Eve are alive and created, and the devil is there as the tempter. And so he's already fallen by that point. So there's some good evangelicals who put the uh, fall of Satan in, in history past and eternity past. I, I don't. And I wish I could spend some more time and walk through the chronology of it, but we're out of time. But thanks for being with us today.